In uh, just a few moments, I am going to continue the reading from 2 Samuel chapter 1 for us. And so I would invite uh, you to turn, uh, whether you want to turn in your, uh, your own Bibles or the bulletin or that uh, blue pew Bible, it's on page 254, and, uh, and follow along with me uh, as I read that for us. Uh, but before I do so, uh, it seems uh, prudent and wise for us to consider just a moment before uh, I read that for us and before we go into this sermon uh, to, to think about why we are going into 2 Samuel uh, right now and then kind of give us a little bit of a reminder of where things are as we uh, pick up the story that is before us today and what has preceded it in 1 Samuel. So I want you to know that we are not going into 2 Samuel this morning because I, as your pastor, or we, as the session, thought that there was some particular lesson that we needed to learn from 2 Samuel, that this is somehow the thing that our church needed to hear right now because of X story that is contained in there or some sort of event. Uh, we were, before this summer, summer series, together in 1 Peter, and when we read through 1 Peter, we found it to be uh, a book that was particularly, I think, relevant to us. And really, you only needed to go a verse or two before coming across things in 1 Peter that you said to yourself immediately, hey, that really applies, or I need to apply that in my life, or that relates or connects to things that we are experiencing in this world. We won't find, I suspect, 1 Samuel to be exactly the same as that. And yet, nevertheless, what God has done in giving us his word is he's given us his word in all of these different forms, in all of these different genres, the literary styles, the historical settings that are contained in them. And it's all given to us, whether it's in the form of psalms or a, a, a historical writing like this or a, an exhortational letter to the church in general like First Peter. It's all given to us so that we might know the story of God so that we might know what we, as the people of God living in this world, are to believe and how we are to live. I know that's simply stated, and it's, it's simply the way that our catechism states in its simplest form the reason that God has given to us the word, and that's why we're going into 2 Samuel. We're going into 2 Samuel so that we can learn what we are to believe about God and how we are to follow after God. Now, in addition to that, we are kind of engaged in, as a church, at least since I've been here now uh, for 12 years, in, in what in, in Latin is called the Lectio Continua. And the, the Lectio or Lectio Continua is simply the idea of continual or continuous reading. And it means that you're kind of taking the scriptures as they come, as they are given to us. And so when I first got here 12 years ago, I began in Genesis. Uh, and as we've worked through the Old Testament, I haven't preached through every single book uh, up to this point, but a lot of them uh, we have preached through. And now we've come to this point of 2 Samuel. And so we continue in this continuous reading because for us, as the people of God who live now, it is for us important to be anchored into the story of the people of God from the past. Their story becomes our story, our history, 
and frankly, it then helps us to understand our own story and how we are to live in this world. So that's why we're in 2 Samuel. We finished 1 Samuel about a year and a half ago now, and we started it long before that. So it has been a while, and as I said, I think it's helpful just for, for just a moment here to remind us of where we are as we come into our chapter that is before us today. This was originally one book, so we have it divided up, uh, and it's convenient and it's appropriate that it be so. The, the transition is pretty clear. Uh, we have it divided into 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, but nevertheless, you, you really need to think of it as one book. Uh, if you want to think of it as two volumes in one book, that's fine. Uh, but nevertheless, this is a continuing story from where we are before. So 1 Samuel told us of the transition that took place in Israel between the time of the judges and the institution of the monarchy, of kingship in Israel. And 1 Samuel began with a woman who couldn't bear a child until the Lord heard her prayer opened her womb, she gave birth to Samuel, who was to be the last of the judges. Now, just to put this in a little bit of a time frame for you, to orient historically where we are, I've said this many times before, but people find it helpful, and so I'll say it again. If you want to think of how uh, to understand or just to, to remember the dates of Old Testament history, if you think of Abraham at 2000 B.C., and then if you think of Moses at 1500 B.C., and you think of David at 1000 B.C., you've got good rough numbers that allow you to then kind of hang everything else from there on those uh, big, nice, round numbers. So the period of the judges is roughly the period from 1500 to 1000. And when we come into Samuel, we're at about 1000 B.C. Obviously not exact, but enough to give us a sense of where we are in terms of history and where we are in the timeline of Israel. So Samuel is the last of the judges, and he anoints Saul to be Israel's first king. You'll recall it, he's the people's choice. The people want a king to be like the other nations who are around them. And so God agrees to this not-so-pure request of the people to have a king to be like these other nations to protect them, and Samuel anoints Saul to be king. Now, as Saul begins, he has a few victories, and that's a good thing for Israel, but it isn't long before Saul sins in excuse me, Saul falls into rather grievous sin against the Lord. And it is a sin for which he is ultimately in his heart unrepentant. And as a result of that sin, the Lord makes a declaration, and, and, and this is a declaration that's found in 1 Samuel, that the Lord has torn the kingdom away from you, away from Saul, and has given it to your neighbor. And the way that that plays out in the story itself is that God has Samuel anoint David uh, as the king to be after King Saul. But of course, what you had there, as we looked at 1 Samuel, is a time when, uh, in fact, Saul was the anointed king and David was the anointed king-to-be. Uh, this, amongst other things, uh, drove Saul rather mad at various points. David sought to assuage him, to calm him, uh, but Saul, as it was, pursued David's life. 
and sent David out into the wilderness, fleeing from the wrath of Saul, who saw him as, of course, and understandably so, a danger to his kingship and to the household as well. Now, as we're coming up to this particular chapter, in David's flight from Saul, he found himself, if you will recall, fleeing to, of all places, the Philistines, and kind of aligning himself with the Philistines' enemies of the people of God in a way that would allow him to be protected from Saul and yet kind of fight against some of Israel's enemies as well. It was fairly strategic on his part until there came a time when there was going to be a declared battle between the Philistines and Israel as well. And it looked like, right up to the last moment, that David was going to get drawn into this battle on, of all things, the side of the Philistines, which, of course, is problematic. You don't want the anointing king of Israel going to war against Israel on behalf of the Philistines. But God, in his providence, stops that. At the very last minute, he stops it by causing the, the, the kings of Philistia to be suspicious of David and to say, no, no, we don't want him to have any part of this. And so they send David off. They send him back to where he and his men had camped, a place called Ziklag, which is where we started this chapter today. And when David returns to that place, he finds that the Amalekites have made a raid and taken all of the wives and the children and all of the, the spoil, all of the stuff from this camp. And of course, the men are distressed by this. And David leads the men in a campaign to go and chase down, track down the Amalekite raiders, in which he is successful by the Lord's hand and returns the wives, the children, and all of the spoil back to Ziklag, back to this place. And at that place, he celebrates the victory and generously distributes all of the things that were gained in that raid. Meanwhile, meanwhile, Israel has gone to war with the Philistines. And it was, in fact, a crushing defeat for Israel, during which Saul and his son Jonathan and other sons and many Israelites died. Saul falling on his own sword on Mount Gilboa. And that was all, or that last part there, the defeat of Israel, the death of Saul, was recorded for us in 1 Samuel 31, the chapter preceding ours today. And when I preached on that back a year and a half ago, I called that sermon Dies Irae. Dies Irae, the day of wrath. Now, it wasn't the final day of wrath when the Lord comes uh, with all of his angels and separates all things, but it anticipated that day. It was the day when the Lord's judgment came and was meted out upon Saul and upon his household for all of their disobedience. David is learning of that day in our chapter. Okay, we've already learned of it in chapter 31 as it was reported to us. David is learning about it here through this Amalekite who has come to him. And so, with that, the word of God continues from verse 17. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Parentheses. It here. Uh, this is also a reference, it, it can be known as the bow. 
Okay, this, this lament might be called the bow, and it there could be the bow. He wanted this lament called the bow, as in bow and arrow, to be known and taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. We don't have the book of Jashar, perhaps a collection of writings or songs uh, that, as one writer tells us, has now gone out of print. Uh, so we don't have that one, but we do have this song from it, and we have some other things scattered throughout Scripture from it as well. I'll start over. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah, behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You, daughters of Israel, weep over Saul who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war have perished. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand your word, to receive it, to enter into it, to have it change us, to help us to know what we are to believe and how we are to live. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Now, I realize that I've just said a lot, and I realize that I've just recounted a lot of, of history that was there. I hope it was understandable in a summary format. I also am aware that we've got a lot of verses before us in our text this morning. But in order to kind of set the stage and frame the way I think we are to, to consider this passage this morning, I want to read three more verses for you as we get started. I don't want you to turn here. I just want you to listen. The three verses I'm going to read are, I suspect, familiar to some of you. They come from Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and they are these. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. The living take it to heart. 
When we go into the house of the, living, of, the, of the mourning, the living take it to heart with the news of Saul and Jonathan's death. The place where David is, this place Ziklag, this place where he is at the moment celebrating this victory, this recovery of all that had been stolen, all that had been taken away from him. That place of celebration, his home, immediately turns into the house of mourning when he gets this news from the Amalekite. David is among the living, but he takes these deaths, this defeat, to heart. He doesn't just dismiss it, as we do so many aspects of news, there are so many things that we hear that we just let them go right by. They have little or no impact on us. But instead, he takes it to heart. He takes it to heart personally. And not only does he take it to heart personally, but he composes a lament, a psalm of mourning that he wants to be recorded and he wants it to be taught to all of the people of Judah. David isn't concerned that he alone takes this to heart, although it is deeply personal for him. He wants all of the people of God to take it to heart. Take it to heart what has happened. The king is dead. The glory of Israel is slain. The people's choice of a mighty man, a head taller, stronger than anybody else who was around. The people's choice of a mighty man to protect them from their mighty surrounding neighbors is dead. He has fallen on his own sword. The first king of Israel, the one anointed by Samuel, is dead. And so is the friend of his heart, Jonathan. So is the one who is closer to him than anybody else. He is dead as well. How the mighty have fallen. Now, as I said in the, uh, before I read or as I was reading, the, the, the lament may be called the bow. If I were titling it, I would call it How the Mighty Have Fallen because you saw, as I read, I trust that it's repeated three times. It's in the very first verse of the lament, it's in the very last verse of the lament, and it's right at the section that begins his talking about Jonathan. How the mighty have fallen. Kings fall. Queens fall. Kingdoms fall. Captains of industry fall. Religious leaders fall, judges fall, sports heroes fall, and Marty died. And it didn't seem like it would ever happen. How the mighty fall, sooner or later. And I think we can see that there are multiple meanings to this idea of fall, right? It's, it's not just a double entendre, it's a it's a triple entendre, if not more, and we could easily do more with it. In a very simple sense, we can use the word fall saying, as it does here in the text, that, that, that Samuel, um, Samuel, excuse me, that Saul fell on his sword. Okay, so he implants his sword and he falls on his sword. 
But more extended than that, we can talk about the fact that Saul has died. That Saul and many other Israelites and his sons fell in death. They fell in battle. They were standing in battle and then they fell in battle. And we can note this, as we have already in our confession of sin. We fall. All of us fall, ultimately, because of sin. Romans, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so how the mighty have fallen is not simply a description of what sometimes happens to powerful people in powerful positions when pride and privilege take precedence in their lives and we all go, yes, finally, to it. No. How the mighty have fallen is the story of all of us, just with the mighty, it is written large. It's in big, bold letters that are out there so that all of us a.k.a. the living, can take it to heart. That's what David wants. That's what he wants with this song. I want all of you to take this to heart. How the mighty have fallen, that we might understand ourselves. Okay, now let's take a few moments now and work through this story and then the song itself. So an Amalekite comes to David with the news. Okay, the Amalekites, just by way of reminder, and this is kind of, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, poetic justice or just the way God has worked out this situation. But as a reminder, the Amalekites are the ones that Saul was commanded to destroy entirely, completely, totally, and he didn't. Okay? And the Amalekites are also the ones uh, that raided Ziklag, David's clan, and all of the women and children who were there. So the Amalekites are these enemies. And this Amalekite, as he comes into David's presence, looks the part. It looks like he's come from the battle by the way he's dressed, by the dirtiness that he has. And he clearly knows who David is. He's not confused about it. He's seeking out David. And he pays homage to David when he gets to him and he delivers the news. And of course, the news is not good. Here's the news. The people, verse 4, the people fled from the battle and also many of the people have fallen and are dead and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. David asks for confirmation. And so the Amalekite then gives more detail, tells the story, and produces the crown and the armlet of Saul as proof positive. You know, there's, there's no way I get this, except for the fact that I saw it with my own eyes. I stabbed him, I killed him finally, and I took the crown, and I took the armlet for him. Now, from him. Now, we have to pause here for just a moment and recognize a discrepancy, a discrepancy that exists between this account of the Amalekite and the account that we have found in uh, the previous chapter, in chapter 31. So, in chapter 31, we read this, then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistake 
mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died. So this Amalekite comes with his story. Uh, and you've got basically two possibilities here. You've got a possibility that the armor bearer of Saul was mistaken. That in fact, when Saul fell on his sword, the armor bearer thought he was dead, but he was not actually dead until this Amalekite comes uh, and sees him in pain and in anguish and finishes what Saul had started. That's a possibility that exists here that we're just getting more detail than we got in the previous chapter. There's another possibility. The other possibility is the Amalekite is lying. Okay? He, he's trying to embellish his story a little bit. He's trying to ingratiate himself to the new king. He knows the story. He knows who's going to be king. That's why he's bringing to David the armlet and the crown from Saul. And what better way to ingratiate yourself to the new king than by saying, I took care of the one who has been your enemy for these many years. He had already done it himself. All I did was finish it. I didn't initiate this. I just finished it. And here you go. I am presenting this to you. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis is uh, a commentator that I quoted many times uh, in 1 Samuel and will continue to do so uh, even starting now in 2 Samuel as well. How do you decide between those two options? Well, here's what Davis says. If you ever have a choice between the narrator and an Amalekite, always choose the narrator. Uh, so, so the narrator gave you the story in 31, the Amalekite in 2 Samuel chapter 1. Uh, Davis goes on to say, did you ever meet an Amalekite you could trust? Uh, so anyway, you do that with that as uh, you will. But in any case, the armlet and the crown are, of course, proof of death. And you think about this, and what a moment this is for David to see all of this taking place right now. The man whom he had served... The man, the same one who had made him a refugee for these now many years, the man who had many times sought to kill him, who had brought troops out against him, the king is dead, and with him Jonathan, and with them Israel has fallen. And with all of that, David knows somewhere in the back of his mind, in the front of his mind, what this means for him, right? Because now he's the only anointed one left standing. Saul, the anointed one, has fallen. Jonathan, a presumed heir, at least in the normal economy of things or others of those sons, have fallen. One anointed one is standing, and it's David. And he's just been given the crown, and he's just been given the armlet to say, Okay, we know the transition is at hand. So what's he going to do at this moment? The response of David at this moment in the immediacy shows, I think, his heart. He mourns the loss. Then David took hold of his clothes, tore them, and so did all of the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan and for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. He doesn't delight even there in the death 
of the one who stood against him and who had caused him so much grief. He mourns. He mourns. He mourns even though all of this was foretold. I know we haven't looked at it recently, but if we went back into 1 Samuel, we would see that all of this is going to be the result. This is what is going to happen. It is a clear judgment of God. It is justly meted out upon Saul and upon his household, and it is in accord with all of the principles of justice, including Hannah's song itself. Hannah's song, verses 3 and 4 from what we opened our worship with, Talk no more so very proudly, let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. David mourns the devastation of the fall in this fallen world. Another king will come. And he will look out over the masses, over the crowds, over Jerusalem. And he will weep. And he will have compassion for them. And all of them, all of us, members of that crowd, are those who are worthy of his justice. Worthy of the diesire being meted out against us. The day of wrath being meted out against us. But that king will come, King Jesus comes, and he has compassion as he looks out over that. May we mourn, this is an application tossed in here into the middle of this, may we mourn and not secretly delight at the fall of the mighty as if they had it coming and we don't. There's not a single person in here who doesn't know this temptation. Every single person in here knows this temptation. That when we see someone who's in a position of power, of authority, of some sort, fall, there's a little part of us inside that goes, yeah, I knew it. I'm not surprised by this. And we feel good about ourselves. David mourns. He doesn't in any way gloat. Back to the Amalekite. David confirms he is a sojourner. He's a son of a sojourner, which is to say he's one who has dwelt in the land long enough to know that Saul was the Lord's anointed. And as soon as David realizes that that's taken place, he says, all right, we need to kill this one who had the nerve to raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. David himself wouldn't do that. Right? Now, I know, going back to 1 Samuel. But David had opportunities to kill Saul, to settle this whole thing once and for all, to in initiate his own kingship, to get rid of the problematic kingship of Saul. David had opportunities to do that, but he said to himself and to his men, I will not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. He had respect. He had reverence for the holiness, the separateness of the one whom the Lord had anointed to be in that position. And he said, I won't do it. And I won't let any of you do it either. You don't raise your hand against the Lord's anointed. And remember, I won't go through this in depth right now, but remember from Hannah's song 
the very last part of her song, the very last thing that was our call to worship, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. He will exalt the horn of his anointed. From the very beginning of this book, we are setting up what it means to honor the Lord's anointed, to follow after the Lord's anointed. And Saul was the Lord's anointed. And let me remind you, let me remind you of the Hebrew word for anointed. When you anglicize the Hebrew word for anointed, the word is Messiah. And when you take that and you translate it into Greek and you anglicize the Greek and say it the way we would say it, the word for anointed is Christ. That's the continuity that is here. That's what we're talking about here and nothing less. These kings and how you relate to them foreshadow the King Jesus Christ against whom hands would also be raised. How we relate to the Lord's anointed makes all of the difference. It makes all of the difference between life and death, between blessing and cursing, between heaven and hell. It's not just about us. It's about how we relate to the Lord's anointed, to the king. And the Psalms instruct us in it. They say, don't rise up in rebellion against the Lord and against his anointed. Instead, the proper response, Psalm 2, kiss the son. Kiss the son. Embrace the anointed one of the Lord. So David's lament here is then a royal lament. It is the loss of this anointed one. It is a national lament. There is loss and there is shame for the nation. And of course, it's personal. It is the loss of his friend, Jonathan. I'm going to go through the song, but just very briefly through this song. Verse 20, tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Those are, those are cities of Philistia, capital cities of Philistia. David says, don't let the news of Israel's defeat, of the death of Saul, get out into these places because they'll be dancing in the streets if the news gets out too late. The head of Saul is already nailed up onto the wall of a Philistine city. But it gives you the picture. There's going to be dancing in the streets in Philistia because the anointed one has been killed. Verse 22, 21. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. Gilboa is where this fall took place of uh, Saul himself. And when he says no dew falling upon you, he's saying no anointing of you, mountain, because on you the anointed one died. He wasn't anointed with oil. He was anointed with blood on you. No dew, no anointing for you, mountain. It's a curse on the mountain. And then he goes into these reflections in the next couple of verses on Saul and on Jonathan. And you'll note the absence of condemnation that is here. And the celebration of the strength of the union, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely. This is verse 23. In life and in death, not divided swifter than eagles, stronger than lions. Verse 24, 
is a recognition of the fact that for all of Saul's problems, which were not insignificant, there was some level of prosperity among the people of Israel for which Paul says to the daughters of Israel, give thanks. Give thanks. This prosperity has clothed you well. And then as it continues, it turns to mourning, a lament for the loss of the friend. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Now, in our day and age in particular, we need to say a couple of things about this. One, this is not a homoerotic statement about David and Jonathan, nor is it a statement to be taken against women as if somehow the love of women is inferior or women are inferior to love and friendship between men, nor is it to say that marriage is a lesser thing than a good friendship with a good kindred spirit friend. But the fact of the matter is, David's marriages weren't all that stuff to write home about. He wasn't the best husband in the world. He took too many wives. He did not treat them well. And so his marriages weren't the kind of things that brought him the kind of covenantal joy that marriages ought to have brought. And so the fact of the matter is that in David's life, the thing that was stable was Jonathan. He was the one who was faithful. He was the one who was loyal. And we conclude then with verse 27, how the mighty have fallen, how the weapons of war, the sword of Saul, the bow of Jonathan, how they have perished. The mighty ones, Jonathan, who protected us, Saul, who was the king for whom we all voted and raised our hands and clapped and cheered so that we would be protected from our enemies. They have fallen. The message is this, brothers and sisters, take it to heart. Take it to heart. And just to, to say, what does it mean to take it to heart? Grieve. It's a lament. We are to grieve. Matthew Henry, the more we love, the more we grieve. The more we love, the more we grieve. That's the simple reality. David loved, and David grieved. What took place here? To the king, to his friend, to the country, the people of Israel. Take it to heart. Take your stand with the anointed. Ultimately, in context, the problem here, the tragedy here, is that the anointed one has fallen. And so the call of this, big picture-wise, is take your stand with the anointed one. And for us, as the people of God living now, make no mistake, that is to take our stand with King Jesus. The anointed one, King Jesus, is the one in whom we find our refuge. Take it to heart. Be sober-minded. I think the first thought I had in preparing for this was that this is a sobriety test. This chapter is a sobriety test. What are you thinking about? What are you thinking about in this world? Are you clear-headed? Are you clear-focused on life and on its end? 
Be sober-minded in this world and think well. And finally, this lament is a call to take up courage in his name and in his cause. Make no mistake about what's going on here. When, when this kind of leads off with the image of the celebration in these cities of the Philistines, it's supposed to get you mad. If you're one of Israel, and, and if the sword of Saul has fallen, and if the bow of Jonathan has been crushed, take up yours. In the name of the anointed, take up yours. Now, understand here, this is a theocratic state. They're going to need to take up arms, right? They're going to need to take up arms in the name of the next anointed. You and I are taking up a different set of arms. But nevertheless, the principle is there. This is a call to arms. It's a lament to say, this just popped into my head. It may be too crass, but I'll say it anyway. Next man up. Next man up. Let's go. We don't want any celebrating in those lands. For us, next man up is get in the battle. Get in the fray. Get on the field. The mission field, that is. As the hymn says, not just the mighty, but we all will lay in dust life's glory dead until the resurrection of the dead at the coming of the anointed one. Until then, while we reflect on the fall of the mighty, perhaps David's prayer in Psalm 39 will serve as a fitting conclusion here. It's the same idea as in Ecclesiastes. Here's David's prayer. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, I have made my days, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O oh Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. My hope is in you. Lord, make me know my end. Saul died. Take it to heart. Marty died in hope. Take it to heart. Jesus died and raised from the dead. Take it to heart. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray that it would penetrate our cold, stony hearts, or at least our calloused hearts. Work your will in our lives, and we pray this all in your name. Amen.